Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mailbag, nothing personal word of the day. We're doing another mailbag episode. And I'm starting with the topic that, please, I, I want you to not fast forward through. And that's Coke is upset. He thinks that some people will because it's very controversial. But I want to have a conversation about what's going on in the Supreme Court right now. And I want to try to answer a question. Mailbag is when I answer questions. People send me questions on Twitter at David P. Sampson. You can do questions inside a review that you write on Apple when you rate and review. You can do questions on Instagram. There are questions all the time. I like answering questions. I do it during the course of a show in the So You Want to Talk to Sampson segment. And then we do these mailbag episodes. I want to get going right now. Would you be willing to discuss the Supreme Court and the oral arguments that recently happened in a way that I would understand because I am not a lawyer? Thank you. Thank you. Someone sent me this question, knowing that I would want to talk about it, knowing that you don't find many podcasts, sports, culture, entertainment podcasts willing to talk about the cases, Roe v. Wade, the abortion cases, what happened in the Supreme Court. Let me tell you that I went to law school. I graduated in 1993. One of the greatest trips, one of the greatest, most memorable things I've done in my life is we had a field trip. Yes, you do field trips in law school to Washington. And we went to the Supreme Court and I was able to witness a session. And I remember thinking to myself, this is like watching the big leagues. I wasn't in baseball at the time and I was more of an NBA fan, but I still think of things big leagues even before I worked in baseball. This is the major leagues. This is what lawyers want. When you become a lawyer and you are a litigator, you want to argue in front of the Supreme Court. When you become a judge, you want to be a justice on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is part of the judicial branch, the third branch of government, of our government, the executive branch, president, the legislative branch, that's Congress, and the judicial branch. It all makes perfect sense if you think about how our society was supposed to be put together, where you've got checks and balances, You've got documents that need to be interpreted. You've got people who are neutral who need to interpret them. Some documents are the Constitution. Some documents are agreements between two randos. All arguments happen when two people look at the same thing and have two different conclusions. You can look at an amendment, the Second Amendment in the Constitution, gun control. You can look at freedom of the press, First Amendment. You can look at other provisions of the Constitution, not in the Bill of Rights. You can look at a document that is your rent agreement for your rental apartment. You could read a sentence in there and think you understand it, think you know how to interpret it. And then you end up in litigation because someone disagrees. It's like a playground fight for adults. 
Well, you know, and you've heard a lot about a case in 1973 called Roe v. Wade. I don't care how old you are. You've heard of Roe v. Wade. That was a case in front of the Supreme Court, but not many people know what Roe v. Wade is. If you ask someone on the street, oh, Roe v. Wade, that's what made abortion legal. Well, that's not the case at all, as a matter of fact. Roe v. Wade was back in 1973, and it had to do with a law in Texas, believe it or not. And back then, abortion was illegal in Texas unless it was used to save the mother's life. That was the general rule in the state of Texas. So the Supreme Court justices got together in 73 and heard an appeal because there was a woman who wanted the ability to have an abortion that wasn't just to save her own life. Do you know what the decision was in Roe v. Wade? It's important to learn the background before we get to current day. The decision was that those justices said that the United States Constitution actually provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects a woman's right to choose. That was the holding. That was the decision. They said that that right to choose can be balanced, however, against the government interest that protects prenatal life and also protects, protects a woman's health. Because what the Supreme Court rules on is what states can do and what states can't do. That's as a general matter. The court in that case, the nine justices, said that the right to privacy that we are saying exists in the Constitution, if you want to know where, because it's not specifically stated, but it's found in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is an amendment that basically is very important to you. And the way it applies to your everyday life is that you have the right to something called due process. It means that things, to bear it down to its barest bones, people can't do things to you that take away your right to not have them done to you. That's the way I like to explain it. So the right to privacy is now established in the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment. The Constitution provides that fundamental right to privacy in the Due Process Clause, and that right to privacy is used to protect a woman's right to choose. Texas, however, said, no, that's not what we believe. We do not agree that the Due Process Clause has this fundamental right to privacy. They actually argued something different. They argued, what is the definition of a person. And they said a person starts right at conception. That's what Texas wanted to argue. The Supreme Court ruled that a person actually starts not at conception. It starts, <laughs> I, I mean, this is crazy, but this informs the entire debate about Roe v. Wade. The court said that in the first trimester, no state regulation that could in any way take away the woman's fundamental right 
to privacy and that that privacy protects her right to choose. In the first trimester, there's nothing a state can do. That's what Supreme Courts do, is they say what a state can do. In the second trimester, the state has the right to regulate abortions to protect the health of the mother. Then states can decide if they want to pass a law that says you can have an abortion, you can't have an abortion, but you can't violate what the Supreme Court ruled. So in the first trimester, there is this fundamental right. In the third trimester, the state has the right to protect life, and that right to protect the life of the fetus is greater than the woman's right to privacy. And what that did is that opened the door to say third trimester abortions may be ruled illegal by a state. That is what Roe v. Wade is. 19 years later, in 1992, there was another case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And this case is never talked about, but this is a case that helped further explain to states what they can do when it comes to abortion. And that whole case was about the viability of a fetus. It's called fetal viability. Not about abortion, about fetal viability. And that court ruled that there is an ability of a fetus to survive outside the womb after 24 weeks. So between 24 to 28 weeks, that becomes a viable fetus or a viable person. Therefore, going back to Roe v. Wade, it's not third trimester. It's 24 to 28 weeks. And that became the new law. The Supreme Court then took up a case in 2021 because Mississippi tried to pass a law. And they did pass a law changing fetal viability to 15 weeks and saying after 15 weeks, we have the right to ban abortion before 15 weeks. There is a fundamental right to privacy that gives a woman a right to choose. But a woman does not have a right to choose after 15 weeks. If we, under the holding and the ruling in Roe v. Wade, if we have the, as the state view the protection of life greater than the protection of the woman's right to choose that is found in the due process clause in the 14th Amendment. That is what the argument is before the Supreme Court right now. Whether or not fetal viability should be 15 weeks, that is the issue. So people go in front of the Supreme Court, they argue, Mississippi's arguing, saying that 15 weeks is right. By the way, this case is from 2018. It's just getting heard now. The conservative chief justice, his name is Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts. People thought he was the most conservative justice on the court. No more. He wants the Supreme Court to rule only on what is in front of them, which is whether or not the fetal viability timeline should be moved from 24 to 28 weeks down to 15 weeks. That is the sole issue in front of us. That's what we should rule on. But the justices who are newer to the court appointed by, President, by then President Trump are actually trying to broaden this Mississippi case 
in order to change the definition that was established in Roe v. Wade and further clarified in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And they are trying to make it so that states have the right at any point to decide whether protection of life is greater than and more important than a woman's right to choose. If the court says that, then every state then will have the power to make whatever law it wants as it relates to abortion, because there will be no supreme law of the land. There will be no federal ruling, a Supreme Court ruling saying that you cannot regulate and make abortion illegal prior to 24 to 28 weeks or prior to 15 weeks. You now can make it illegal anytime. Rape, incest, doesn't matter. States can choose what they want to do. The Supreme Court would not be making abortion illegal. The Supreme Court would be allowing states to decide with no direction and no set of rules what they want to do. So you could have a state like California, which says abortion is absolutely legal. There is a right for a woman to choose. Her fundamental right to choose outweighs anything our state could ever say. And she has the right to choose whenever she wants. You could have a state somewhere else down south where they say, no, we actually are going to say that all abortion will be banned starting day one. What's surprising about what the Supreme Court could decide is not that they would overturn Roe v. Wade. It's the reason why. And this is where I have the biggest problem. If you erase viability as the line between when an abortion may or may not be banned, right? And that's what Mississippi wants. They don't, they don't want a set of weeks. They want 15 weeks, but it's possible that they'll even go further. But if you erase that line or make that line even 15 weeks, when amniocentesis, by the way, is week 16 to 20, when you can discover whether or not the fetus is going to have some sort of problem when it's born. But if you erase that line, you are definitely overruling not just Roe v. Wade, not and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And if the court does that, what would be their reason? Is it a reason that conservative people say we want fewer rules in the federal government? We want states to have the right to decide. Give states more power, smaller, big government, more local government. That's the tent they're hiding in. That's the tent conservatives hide in. I've hidden in that tent before on certain economic issues, no doubt about it. But then one of the justices stood up and it was a woman, Justice Barrett. And she said, you know, whatever we decide, all the woman has to do is take a baby to term and then she can leave the baby on the steps of a fire station and you don't get in trouble. There's a law, by the way, that you can do that. You can give up the child for adoption can leave the child, the police fire, no problem. I'm not sure she's taking into account the therapy that would be required for that child. Maybe she thinks it's not her right as a Supreme Court justice to take that into account. And I tend to disagree vehemently. I am not pro-abortion. I am not anti-abortion. I am pro-choice. I rarely give you my political views. I rarely do. But the Supreme Court has become so political. Justice Sotomayor, who I was lucky enough to host at a game in Miami, 
a brilliant woman. I don't agree with everything she says, that's for sure. But her biggest concern with this abortion case, this Mississippi fetal viability case, is that this judicial branch is start is going to be looked at as a political arm. And that's not what it should be. Of course, they get appointed by presidents. They get confirmed by senators. But once they take the robe and sit in the chair with their lifetime appointment, the reason why the Supreme Court justices get lifetime appointments is the very thing Sotomayor is talking about. So they don't have to answer to politicians. So they don't have to answer to the right or to the left. They get to make decisions on a case-by-case basis, thinking about the Constitution, thinking about precedent, other cases that have been done. And the reason why it's so important for Supreme Court justices not to be political is that that tears at the fabric of our entire way of being, at the entire three pillars of government. Far be it for me to understand how any state would ever say that they would rather protect a fetus and that that protection is greater than a woman's right to privacy and a woman's right to choose. I find it hard to believe that anyone could actually think that. There's one thing that we want as Americans, right? Whether you are on the right or on the left, what's the one thing we all agree? There's only one. Well, there could be more, but the biggest one, freedom. I'm free. The biggest thing we can do to someone is to take away their freedom. That's why we have a judicial system. That's why there's a criminal system. It's not perfect. The result is when you take someone's freedom away, you've taken away their right to choose what to do that minute, that day where to be. There are certain freedoms that we're willing to allow our government to take away. The freedom to drink before we're 21 in a public establishment, right? The freedom to drive on a highway before we have a license. There's a certain amount of government regulation that is federal, that state that we're all okay with that does eke, tweak away our freedoms, right? And people argue to me, David, this is just one of them. And I say, no. It's not even close to one of them. The right to choose what you do with your day, with your time, with your body is the single most fundamental freedom that we have. Taking away that freedom because of political reasons, because of your belief that you have an idea of when a fetus is viable versus when it's not, and that you value that above the freedom of a woman, I'm not a buyer of that because once they come for a woman's right to choose, guess what's next? They're coming for my right to choose. And I will defend my right to choose what I do on a daily basis until my last breath, because it's the only right and the only freedom that I need because without it, I can't live. And with it, I can stand up and do whatever I want. When people want to ask you about the Supreme Court case and they want to ask you about Roe v. Wade and they say that abortion is going to be made illegal by this Mississippi case that's before the Supreme Court, you'll now tell them, no, they won't make it illegal. They'll give the rights back to the state and each state will get to decide. 
You'll tell them, but some states are going to ban it and they're going to put rules in place that'll make it impossible for poor women to get abortions. And you'll start with hanger abortions again, like there used to be. You'll be right on all those things. You may be wrong on some of those things, but now you'll be right when you explain to people what the case is actually about. Fetal viability. The right to privacy as found in the due process clause. The right of a woman to choose. That's what's before the Supreme Court. Thank you for that question. I don't know how long we went on that, but I could go even longer because talking about freedom is something that matters to me. Just like you're free to fast forward, but don't. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let's go to question two. What would you say is the biggest PR mistake you made as president of the Marlins? You're always telling Steve Cohen how he should have handled certain situations, but I'm sure there was a time or two where you pulled a Stevie boy and wish you had handled it differently. Oh, God. The number of PR mistakes I made I can't even count them on my fingers and toes. I did it normally when I did interviews. I did it on the Levitard show. They weren't mistakes. They were purposeful. Wait, does a mistake have to be? Coca, clarify this for me. Can you do something on purpose that ends up being a mistake in hindsight? Or if you do something on purpose, that's not a PR mistake. It was just a PR blunder. You were just wrong. Does a mistake have to be made while you're doing it? Or can it be made in the rearview mirror? What do you think of that, Coca? I don't think he's even listening. I think he's so upset about the first topic. I think that the question is where we are as a show and what I am as a person, which is honest to a fault, right? The PR mistakes I've made are exactly that. It's when I've told fans through the media things that were going on about the Montreal Expos or the Florida Marlins, things that were going on about contraction, things that were going on about a team moving that were absolutely accurate, but they were misinterpreted as though I didn't care. They were misinterpreted as though I didn't try. And none of those are true because not only did I care and not only did I try, but if I could have changed the outcome of how the stadium deal took so long in Miami or the outcome of how we did our first year in Miami, in the Marlins, New Marlins Park, why the Expos had to leave Montreal, I would change all of that. If I had my actual way, I'd still be in Montreal. Jeffrey Laurier would still own the Montreal Expos. They'd be in a brand new stadium and I'd be living in Montreal, speaking French every day and loving life and trying to spend summer winters in Florida. But the PR mistake that comes to mind 
Stephen Cohn makes different sorts of mistakes, right? His PR mistakes are based on inexperience. My early ones were not based on an experience, even though I was inexperienced. They were based on calculated decisions that I made because I thought they were right. And they ended up being right because honesty is always the right way to go. It's the reason why nothing personal is successful, right? We tell you how things are, how they really are. We tell you what people are saying, even when they don't say what they're saying and they don't think that you're going to know what they mean to say when they use misdirection. And the only reason I'm able to do is because I did it. So I'm not willing to say that those are PR mistakes. I'm not willing to do it, Coca. Telling Ichiro he's overpaid. That may have been a PR mistake. Telling people that baseball would end with Ichiro's contract. Telling people the Marlins were going to move to Texas. That's not a PR mistake. It's a strategy. Yeah, I'm not willing to say it. Okay, I'm moving on. What is the lowest level of employee for the Marlins that you reach down to have direct hands in hiring as president? I love that question. For instance, I know you don't hire the interns for the summer, but would broadcasters be people that you're directly working in the hiring process? So team president, I'm in charge of interviewing and hiring vice presidents. Vice presidents hire directors. Directors hire managers, but everyone goes to one level above for confirmation of the hiring of two levels below. When VPs hire directors, they tell me because I hire the VPs. When directors hire managers, they go to the VP because they're two levels above the manager. When VPs, so that's how it goes. Owner, president, right? President, GM on the baseball side, GM manager, GM, VP of player personnel, head of player development, head of scouting. Under president is finance and human resources and marketing and sales. I'm hiring a VP for all those. What they do is they come to me, the VPs every year with their promotions list, and I approve every promotion to VP. And I have consulting privileges of every promotion to manager and director. And the reason I do is that I'm in charge at the end of the day of the overall budget. And part of budget is payroll. And part of payroll is title related. And people fit into slots. We slot our employees according to title. Now, the slots can be wide and varied. But when people change title, they're generally getting a raise with that. And I need to know what our overall comp is in the company, off-field and on-field. Two different budgets, by the way. Am I interested in who we hire? The answer is I'm interested in statistics of who we hire. I wanted to know what our diversity record was, and I never had to worry about it in Miami because we hired so many people who spoke Spanish, so many Latin people. I always wanted to know the number of black people we were hiring, people of color, women. I wanted to keep track because we were being looked at as every professional sports team is now as every company is. So I wouldn't say we're ahead of our time. I just say that it always mattered to me how we looked. And the reason I wanted diversity was not because I wanted to satisfy some sort of quota. 
this is not going to be a popular take, Coco. I didn't care about quotas. I didn't care that it was an in thing to have women around or people of color. I wanted different people around, different age, different color, different sex, because I wanted the money of all of those people, all of those fans. I don't want just middle-aged white people. I wanted every fan because fans spend money. And in order to do that, you need people who work for you who can speak to every type of demographic. It's just good business to have diversity. It's not that it's good politically, which it is. It's not that it's the right thing to do, which it is. It's actually because it's the right thing for your business. I don't believe in forcing people to hire people. There were times that I would call a director and say, I need you to hire this person's son, this person's daughter. I would open the door for many people to get into the business, into the team, but then they'd have to do the rest. I would be willing to hire an intern, anybody with a connection. Connections matter. That's why you have to network. That's why you have to meet people. That's why you have to keep track of who you meet and find touch points, find reasons to reach out to people. You never know who can be helpful to you or your child or your friend. But once they're in the door, they've got to keep themselves in the door. I'm not going to keep them in the door. I've had to let go plenty of daughters and sons of people who were important to me. And the reason I was able to do it is I was open and honest with the parents saying, John or Jane simply was not a good fit. There were some instances where I would be even more specific when there was something that was done by the child, by the employee, by the intern. I would get involved by looking at the sales department, but not in the hiring of specific salespeople. I would get involved in looking at the HR department, but not get involved in specific hires in the HR department. Finance, same thing. I wanted our CFO to hire the controller, to hire people in accounts payable, accounts receivable, payroll, et cetera. Treasurer, CFO is responsible for all that. I delegated to my C-suite level employees, to my VPs, the ability to run their departments because then I got to judge them based on how their departments run. How can I judge someone? This is what always made me laugh when we would fire our manager. How do you fire a manager when you're telling the manager who to play? And when you're giving the players to the manager, you fire the manager because you don't want to fire yourself. I give power to people to do their job because then I can fire them with a totally clear conscience if the job doesn't get done. It doesn't mean I'm not interested, disinterested, uninterested, even worse. It doesn't mean that I'm not good at what I do. It means there's several different types of leaders. I like giving people the opportunity to have ownership of what they're doing, why they're doing, and how they're doing it. So the lowest level of employee that I ever reached down to would be an intern, although I didn't view them as any lower at all, actually. Broadcasters, you asked me specifically about, I listened to so many broadcaster tapes, I can't even tell you. Before we hired uh, Len Casper, he was not very well known, and now he has an entire career. He was a local sideline guy in Milwaukee, I believe. I may be wrong, Coca. Rich Waltz, when we hired him to replace Len Casper, he's another guy, listened to his tape, and we just said, we're giving him a shot. And look what he's done with his career now. These are all successful broadcasters, but I'm sure that I listened to tapes of people who became huge successes elsewhere. 
What do you do? You listen to a tape and you make a judgment, you make a decision, much like you do when you're hiring anyone off the field or on the field. You take the information that you have, you make the best decision you can. And then if it's wrong, you admit that it's wrong and you move on as quickly as possible. When it's right, you take a lot of credit for it. Okay. I got one. Someone asked me to name my top 10 business movies. I had never done a top 10 list before for top 10 business movies. And I want to do that right now. Now, my definition of business, you're going to see by my list. Coca, where, where did, did I write this down? I wanted to write down the top 10. Okay, I got it. Okay, wipe us in. Four, eight, 69. What are your top 10 business movies? I've got them right here. Number 10, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is a movie that stars Alec Baldwin. It's about sales. Sales is one of the most, if not the most important business skill you could have. We're all in sales. You're selling something every day. Whether you are paid to sell or not is different, but trust me, you are in sales. Your job is to convince people to take something that you want to give them, to take a decision that you've made and make it their own, to where you go to dinner, for Christ's sake. You're selling something to someone always. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross taught me and will teach you that either you win or you lose. There's, it's binary and there's one winner. Famous line, winner gets a raise, loser gets a set of steak knives and fired. I would invoke Glenn Gary Glenn Ross quite often actually. Number nine is a movie with Giovanni Rabisi. It's called The Boiler Room. I believe that uh, Vin Diesel is in that movie as well. And I also believe Neil Long is in that movie. And it's a movie about a young man who works in a chop shop selling stocks that are worthless and taking money from people, stealing their money because they buy high and sell low. And either way, you make a commission when people buy stock. I was, in, I was on Wall Street. I was in a business. I didn't work for a chop shop. I worked for a firm, Morgan Stanley, the opposite of, a, of those sort of penny stock chop shops. You're going to hear about that again in this list. But the ability to sell to people, that is in that movie in spades. Check out Boiler Room. Number eight, Jerry Maguire. Is that a business movie? Yeah, it is. He's an agent. And he decides to leave his company and start his own. One of the most important business decisions, we talked about it in an earlier episode of when do you know to take on necessary debt? When do you know it's time to hold them, to fold them, to expand them? Jerry Maguire wrote a mission statement, got himself fired and started on his own with Renee Zellweger. If you have not watched Jerry Maguire, please do. My number seven top business movie, talks about family and business. It's with Diane Keaton called Baby Boom. Baby Boom is about a woman well before this movie's got to be 25 years old, maybe more. And it's with Sam Shepard. And she starts a company that makes money by selling baby food. And she had come from a business where she had been doing very well but the company she worked in wanted her to choose work over family and she wanted to choose family. So she left and started a business. I think about baby boom all the time because I never chose family first and I pay that price every single day. I chose work first whenever there was a choice to make. 
And I never apologized for it. I'm not apologizing for it today. I had a job to do. I did it. Baby boom should have taught me that you can have both. Except it's one of those movies that I want to believe is real. And to this day, 2021, about to be 2022, you find me someone who can have both. Just haven't seen it. Number six, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Trading Places. It's the commodities business. It's a comedy. It's got Jamie Lee Curtis. It's about commodities, buying and selling commodities on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, where you buy literally orange juice futures. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you understand or don't understand the business, because that's where we get our dollar bet from. So when, when Coke and I bet a dollar on something or everyone I bet with, when I say something's going to happen, it's a wait to see. But otherwise, it's a dollar bet. That's the most I'll ever bet on anything. That comes from Trading Places. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Number five, Tommy Boy. How could Tommy Boy possibly be a sales movie? I'm taping a show live. I'll call you back. The answer is Tommy Boy is exactly about a son taking over a company from his father when his father dies and how he goes about doing it with the help of David Spade. It's a comedy, of course but it's really a movie about business and about how to grow your business and how to make sales when you may not even understand the product. Watch it from a business standpoint. Number four, The Social Network. Absolutely love that movie. It's about the start of Facebook. You wanna learn how Facebook started? Learn what's real and what's not real, but the majority of that movie is real. It really did start with Jesse, oh my God, Jesse Eisenberg playing Adam Zuckerberg who was in Harvard, dropped out of Harvard. And he, what he did, Mark, what did I call him? Did I call him Adam? It's Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you. Why? Who's Adam? Why is that even in my head? I have no idea. All right. Anyway, moving on. Eight, four, six, nine. Can you cut that for me, Coca? Thank you. Number four, the social network with Jesse Eisenberg playing Mark Zuckerberg. It's about how Facebook started. Watch it. It's one of my top 100 too. Number three, you want to understand the housing crisis? Go watch The Big Short. The Big Short's a movie written by Adam McKay. Adam McKay has a new movie coming out with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence called Don't Look Up. Adam McKay is brilliant. He wrote The Big Short and he explains in a way that is quite funny and telling exactly what happened during the housing crisis in 2008. Number two, the number two business movie of all time for me is Wolf of Wall Street. It's the story of Jordan Belford, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And it is about similar. Jordan Belford basically did what the kid does in Boiler Room. He just did it really, really well and then took it to another level by taking Steve Madden, that shoe company public, by breaking the law, by stealing money. He went to prison. Spoiler alert. And he's no longer married to Margot Robbie. Wolf of Wall Street, number two. And the number one business movie of all time, hard stop, Greed is Good. Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas in a movie called Wall Street, starring Charlie Sheen before he was crazy, Daryl Hannah, Wall Street. It's about the stock market. It's about what people do to make money on Wall Street. It comes down to a very simple equation. 
And this doesn't just apply to Wall Street, folks. This applies to anything and everything. When you see something and understand value in a way that someone else does not, you can take advantage. If you can measure value in a way that other people can't, you're going to win money. You're going to make money. Wall Street explains how you do that in a stock market. And the overall number one line of that movie, greed is good. Someone asked me once as part of this question whether I thought greed was good. And I want to answer that. I do believe greed is good. And the reason I believe greed is good is that I believe it's a separator. Because I am very greedy. I'm greedy with my time. I'm greedy with my energy. I'm greedy with the decisions I make of what to do on a daily basis, what to say on a daily basis, what interests me on a daily basis. I am greedy when I want to take something that I want, even though someone else may have it. And I take it by earning it. I take it by taking advantage of people who may know less about a situation than I do. I take advantage. Does that make me a bad person? Isn't that what you all do? Doesn't everybody try to take advantage of something, of someone? It doesn't mean I'm not charitable, which I am. It doesn't mean I'm not caring, which I am. It means that if I have an opportunity to gain, and I'll use my gain to define it any way I want, and it's not just money for me. Sometimes it's personal growth. Sometimes it's charitable intentions. There's all sorts of different reasons that I have for gaining something. And it is a very binary world. When you gain something, somebody's losing something. Now, you're going to say to me, not true. There is creation, creating value. Jeff Bezos says this all the time. Look at the value and the wealth that I've created with Amazon. Sure, I've made $160 billion, but I've made $800 billion for other people. Except that money has been taken from corner stores, big box retail, mom and pop stores in various cities and various parts of the country where people no longer give business to because they buy their stuff on Amazon. So the dollars that he has were dollars that someone else had. Does that make him wrong? Does that make him greedy that once it hit 500 billion, it should just stop? Stop improving the product. Stop making a bigger product. Stop trying to sell more product. Why? Why would anyone ever stop improving? I can't think of a reason. So when I say greed is good, I think greed is necessary. And on top of that, I think everybody's greedy. Okay. Someone asked me another list of movies. I want to stick to new movies for one second, Coca, because I did make this list. What are your top five coming of age movies? So my definition of coming of age may be a little different than yours. Coming of age for me is doesn't have to be kids, but it could be. It can be adults, too. It can be adults who have epiphanies. I view coming of age as epiphany movies. But I found that my list when I was creating the list I tend to go more toward younger people because I wanted to go with what I thought your definition of asking this question was when you said, what are your top five coming of age movies? So number five, a movie with, I'm going to get it wrong. It used to be Ellen Page, but she is a transgender 
and now has a different name. And I can't remember what his name is now. And I'm very sorry. But it's when he was a she. It's called Juno. It is a movie about teen pregnancy. It is a fascinating movie, a great soundtrack, very important movie. And it has aged well, believe it or not. Elliot Page. Thank you, Coca. It's called Juno. Number four, Stand By Me. Stand By Me is a movie that starred River Phoenix, Will Wheaton. Jerry O'Connell, by the way, was a little fat kid in Stand By Me. Not the amazingly good looking guy he is now married to that Victoria's Secret model. I think he's married to a Victoria's Secret model. I may have the wrong guy, but I do know that the guy who was in Stand By Me is now this amazing grown-up guy. It's got one of the great vomit scenes of all time in a pie eating contest. And it's about kids who spend a summer. And I want to tell you a story about Stand By Me. I saw it. Coke, I'll tell you what year it must have come out. It must have been around 1985, 86, 87. What year is Stand By Me, if you could check? And the reason I know is the end of the movie has Richard Dreyfuss in it, who's one of my favorite actors. 1986, I nailed it. So I was a senior in high school. We were just starting to use these Apple two C's, these computers. And Richard Dreyfus is typing a story. He's the narrator, basically, of Stand By Me. And at the end, the end of the movie is him turning off his computer. And when I saw the movie, people gasped. They gasped at that ending because he had not saved his work. So everyone said, oh, my God, your whole book just got erased. That's my memory of Stand By Me, 1986. Number three, Coming of Age is really one of my top-ranked movies of all time. Almost Famous. Almost Famous is about a band. It's Cameron Crowe. I'm not going to review it for you again, except to say, if you haven't seen Almost Famous, I don't want to talk to you. Number two, Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club is one of those movies that you see no matter what age you are, and it makes you realize that you're okay. Everyone's okay. That whether you're a nerd, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a misfit, whether you're a prom queen, whatever you are in high school is not who you're going to be. And whatever you were and are in high school, it will not mean as much going forward. But at the time when you're going through it, it means everything. And that's why every stage of life is so cool to me. Because when you're in that stage, it's the most important stage. It's the most meaningful. You can't see the forest for the trees. And high school trees, believe me, they're no fun. But you only know that when you can see the forest. Breakfast Club number two. My number one coming of age movie, number one, is Perks of Being a Wallflower. Perks of Being a Wallflower is a complicated movie. It's a sad movie. It's a important movie about, it's with Logan Lerman and he is troubled and he spends time with Emma uh, from Harry Potter. I forgot her last name. I, I was going to say Emma Thompson, but it's not. What's her last name? It's Emma Watson. And also the guy who's now in the Marvel movies, whose name, Ezra Miller. Thank you, Coca. And it's about high school and how people get through high school and deal with childhood trauma. And all of us have childhood trauma, make no mistake. Some of our trauma is worse than others. Some we can forget about, some we can work through, some we can't. All of it informs how we act as adults. And Perks of Being a Wallflower has informed a lot of people on how they were as high schoolers, and what they're like now as adults. 
check out Perk Sabina Wallflower. Okay. Where are we, Coca? I think we don't have time for any more. Is that possible? Do we have to wrap? I guess so. All right, we're going to have to do another mailbag because we didn't get to so many questions and I want to get to them. Someone asked a question. Oh, right, we'll get to that another mailbag, I promise. Hey, listen, I appreciate your time. I don't take it for granted. We keep these at 45 minutes. You will hear tomorrow why we had a mailbag today, but it's a pretty good reason. I hope you enjoyed this episode whenever you're listening to it. And remember, it's just business. This is nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.